So everybody was wearing a mask, barking orders, treating journalists miserably. Everything was very, very, very unstable and very uncertain. This is Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. I'm Masha Udensova-Brenner. Can you please say your name and who you are? My name is Argemino Barro, and I'm a reporter from Spain. Argemino was a visiting scholar with us from 2013 to 2014. He started here with the intention of writing a book about Belarus, where he'd spent many months reporting on the dictatorship and the opposition. But his plans quickly switched course after he made a lot of Ukrainian friends at the Institute that fall. And the political situation in Ukraine started to transform dramatically. Massive protests in Maidan as a result of Yanukovych pulling the plug on signing the association agreement with the European Union that disappointed many people in Ukraine. The protests, known as the Revolution of Dignity, managed to oust the pro-Russian president Viktor Yanukovych. He fled to Russia. Then, a few months later, Russia illegally annexed Crimea. Argemino's new friends at the Harriman feared that Donbass, a large Russian-speaking region in eastern Ukraine, might be Russia's next target. They thought Russia was trying to destabilize the region by spreading propaganda and exploiting the resentment that many in Donbass had felt after the ouster of Yanukovych. The thing is, Yanukovych was originally from Donetsk, a large industrial city considered to be the region's unofficial capital. And though he was corrupt and not particularly popular, even in his hometown, many saw the revolution that ousted him as a betrayal. They felt that people in Kiev didn't really care about their votes. And it didn't help that the new Ukrainian government had hardly any politicians from eastern Ukraine, or that the new prime minister, Arseniy Yatsenyuk, visited Washington, D.C. before he even made it to Donetsk. Meanwhile, there was tons of Russian propaganda in the region. The Russian TV was the main media outlet by far in Donetsk, so that was a big role, too. In addition to the Russian propaganda, there were also rumors of Russian interference. There was a sizable contingent in Donetsk who did support the Revolution of Dignity, and Arhimino's friends told him they heard stories of Russians crossing the border and arriving in Donetsk by bus to agitate protesters who went out on the streets to show their support for the movement in Kyiv. Trying to break up demonstrations, trying to pretend that there is a sort of civil war going on in Ukraine. It seemed like something big was about to happen in Donbass. And it so happened that Argemino had just won an award for his reporting on Belarus. With the money of the award, I decided to go to Ukraine and I went straight to Donbass. He arrived at the end of March and planned to stay only a week. He was one of the few foreign correspondents there. After Maidan and Crimea, the news cycle kind of exhausted itself and people went back to their life. At that point, Russian-backed separatists had already tried to take over an administrative building in Donetsk. They'd failed, but the destabilization efforts continued. Arhemino pitched a story about the unrest in Donbass to a Spanish news outlet called El Confidencial. They hesitated. I had to convince them, send them a few emails, be a little bit obnoxious, and in the end said, okay, you know what, fine, why not? In Donetsk, Arhemino went to a pro-Russian rally on Lenin Square. As soon as he got there, a group of old women surrounded him. I don't want to make a caricature, but they had like golden teeth. And all of a sudden, they started yelling at me. And one of them 
started crying of pure fury and anger and frustration. They bombarded him with a series of pro-Russian slogans, saying Ukraine didn't care about them, that they had miserable pensions, that only Russia could save them. Russia is going to come and take care of things. That was my first contact with their anger. The, the way they showed their teeth to me, there was something animalistic and very aggressive that I had never seen. What do you think it was that made them come up to you? One of them was looking at me. And I was obviously a foreigner, right? The way I dress, the way I look, you could feel the paranoia. So you were seen as a symbol or some sort of representation of everything that was grieving. Probably. That happened several times. These ladies were everywhere and they were always yelling the same slogans. Arjemina stayed the week. He met with diplomats, pro-Russian separatists, journalists. Then he left for Odessa, where he planned to catch a flight to New York by way of Warsaw. But before he got on the plane, things started escalating in Donbass. Hundreds of pro-Russian activists have recaptured a government building in the eastern Ukrainian city of Donetsk. Pro-Russian separatists were successfully taking over administrative buildings in Donetsk and the surrounding areas. Arhemino was at a crossroads. Do I take my ticket that is already booked and go back to resume my life in New York, or I stay and I give it a go and see what happens. Meanwhile, his editors, the same editors he'd had to convince to take the story in the first place, were hounding him to submit the piece. They called me like frantically saying, hey, where, 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 where is your article? Give me your article. Because everything I have been researching suddenly materialized. He filed the story and decided to return to Donetsk. When he arrived, the city seemed manicured, peaceful. But a few days later, when he approached the regional administration headquarters building downtown, he entered a different reality. Russian flags and flags purporting to represent the Donetsk People's Republic had replaced the Ukrainian ones. And the place was heavily guarded. Barricades made of tires and wood and barbed wire. Broken furniture, men in balaclavas. Outside, a young man on a bicycle weaved through the crowd. He rode up to Arjemino and introduced himself in perfect English. His name was Anton, and he worked as a fixer. He wondered whether Arjemino needed his services. Then, literally one minute into the conversation, I see all these hateful ladies again <laughs> saying, get him, get him. And I look on my right and I see a guy with a mask coming towards us with a baseball bat on his left hand. The man didn't say a word, just punched Anton with his free hand. He went straight to him and punched him in the face. Anton recognized the guy, a pro-Russian classmate from the University of Donetsk. He must have seen Anton's pro-Ukrainian posts on Facebook or noticed his participation in pro-Ukrainian rallies. Now, all the pro-Russians around them were mad. A whole group of people looking at Anton with animosity. Two burly men who looked like bikers approached. Arjemino thought they might be from the Night Wolves, a group of Russian motorcyclists known to promote the Kremlin's agenda. The men grabbed Anton and tried to take his phone. And then I grabbed him by the arm and said, Anton, let's get out of here. We're going to get killed. They managed to escape, but after making sure Anton was safely out of the crowd, Arjemino returned. He needed to get into the administrative headquarters, where he'd heard that pro-Russian separatists were having an important meeting. 
He approached the barricades, the checkpoints, announced himself as a journalist. A masked man in military fatigues examined his Spanish passport, saying, España, davai. Spain, okay. Inside, the tension was palpable. Some people were very nervous. Everybody was wearing a mask, barking orders, treating journalists miserably. Everything was very, very, very unstable and very uncertain. He was ushered into a stairway up to the 11th floor, a crowded meeting room where a group of about 100 pro-Russian separatists gathered with a dozen or so journalists. Big men in balaclavas stood by the entrance, yelling at the journalists, Tell the truth! No lies! The room felt humid from all the breathing. Some of the separatists rolled up their balaclavas to breathe, and Arjemino could see their faces. He and the other journalists took notes, but tried not to stand out. There were rumors circulating that Ukrainian forces planned to take back the building, and the separatists were tense and paranoid, looking at the journalists with suspicion. At the end of what felt like an eternity, the separatists made an announcement. The pro-Russians declared their intention to hold a referendum to decide whether they should join Russia. Then, Arjemino and the other journalists headed down the corridor to get out. It was lined with pro-Russian militants on either side. Armed with uh, baseball bats and pipes and sticks, and all of them masked. And it was very threatening. We know who you are, and if you do anything, you're going to be in trouble. Seeing what had been done to Anton just a few hours earlier, Arjemino knew what sort of animosity was possible. And over the next few weeks, things would only get worse. Arjemino traveled all over the region and saw many administrative takeovers, some of them bloody and chaotic. He says that, with the exception of Horlovka, where the police chief had fought back against the separatists, the police in the region tended to have pro-Russian attitudes. Side note, if you want to hear about the takeover of the police station in Horlovka, listen to episode 3, right before this one. I talked to a student who saw the whole thing as a teenager. Arjemino heard a lot of accounts about police indifference. It started with the first attempt to take over the government headquarters in Donetsk in March 2014. Witnesses that I interviewed said that the police were just watching as they were breaking windows. So people in Donetsk, those who were pro-Ukrainian, didn't feel safe for obvious reasons. They knew that the police would not protect them. This was particularly threatening when pro-Ukrainians were being hunted. There was a blacklist going around with names and pictures of reporters and fixers and activists. In turn, the pro-Ukrainians made a blacklist too. Arjemino says he made it on both blacklists in the end. But thankfully, by the time it happened, he was done with his reporting. He had some threatening confrontations during his four months in Ukraine, but he managed to avoid any serious trouble. He was very lucky, especially since he had no conflict journalism experience, no protective gear, no safety training. He says he was careful to avoid active fighting. He didn't go near the front lines. Also, his Spanish passport gave him a big advantage with the pro-Russians for historical reasons. You see, in the 1930s, 
the Soviets had helped the Spanish communists fight against the fascists in the Spanish Civil War. The fascists won and ruled with an iron fist for 40 years. Their dictatorship fell in 1975, and communism became popular again in Spain. The resurgent popularity of communism and the memory of the Soviet Union's help during the war led to a mutual affinity that extended to Russia long after the Soviet collapse. In Spain, nine years ago, there was still significant current in public opinion that was pro-Russian. So that helped you? Yeah, they will be like distrustful of me. Where are you from? I'm from Spain. Oh, Spain. And they say, oh, no pasarán. Yeah, come over, you know, and I could get into the building and then some rebel leaders will say, oh, do you need anything? Do you need to meet someone? Argemino took advantage of this, and he got access to pro-Russians because of it. It helped him get into the administrative building, where the Russian-backed separatists announced the sham referendum. What do you think the proportion of people who actually wanted to join Russia was? In my own experience, I would say 50-50 in Donetsk. Argemino says the number of people he saw participating in the sham referendum was striking. A lot of people went to vote. We had rented a car and we went all around Donetsk to see the polling stations. And you saw our lines going like through the parks and around the buildings. And I don't know if that meant 50% or 60% or maybe like 20%, but there was a significant part of the population that wanted to do something. I don't think they wanted to join Russia. I think they wanted to be more acknowledged by Ukraine. To be acknowledged by Ukraine meant acknowledgement by Kyiv, a city so distant and unknown that it felt foreign to many Eastern Ukrainians. It was like a thousand kilometers away and they didn't really know much about it. It was like a different country. He even met members of pro-Ukrainian militias in Eastern Ukraine who'd confessed they'd once felt that way too. Disconnected. And then Maidan helped them to work as a kind of moment of truth, like an inflection point in which they say, oh, you know what? Russia invaded Ukraine, Crimea, and now it's intervening in Donbass. So now I am fully Ukrainian and I'm gonna embrace Ukraine 100% and I'm gonna learn Ukrainian and I'm gonna accept Kyiv as the capital. But for many in the region, the exact opposite happened. After the revolutionaries in Kyiv ousted Viktor Yanukovych, these people felt even more alienated and they saw Russia as their savior. Do you think if Yanukovych hadn't been from Donetsk, things would have gone differently? Yeah, I think it was a big element, and Russia really exploited and managed all these feelings. The resulting atmosphere was so intense that even family members and close friends turned against each other, sometimes violently. Some people really cringe at the word civil war, but I wonder whether if you look at Donetsk, in 2014 and 2015, when the war actually started, it will be the right term to, to portray the province of Donetsk, the, the oblast, at least. Argemino wrote a book based on his reporting in Donbass in 2014, Una Historia de Rus, Crónica de la Guerra en el Este de Ucrania, a history of the Rus, a chronicle of the war in eastern Ukraine. The book delves into the history of the Kievan Rus, the medieval state from which Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus originated. Argemino uses it to contextualize the story of the 2014 war. 
If you can read Spanish, you should check it out. Argemino is currently working on a sequel about the siege of Mariupol. It's based on his reporting in the weeks leading up to Russia's full-scale invasion, and also some time he spent in Ukraine in the summer of 2022. Covering Ukraine as a Spanish-language reporter can be quite a different experience, and Argemino spoke at the Harriman Institute last fall about it. I'll include a link to the talk in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. In this season, we look back to examine how the events of 2014 shaped Ukraine's contemporary history and led to the events of today. You should also stay tuned for our next episode with Nikita Grigorev, a Ukrainian journalist and the Harriman Institute's resident in Paris. He was a student in the Russian philology department at the University of Donetsk when the war first started in 2014. We thought that Russians are our brothers, the best friends for our country. But they were going to Ukraine and started to kill the most clever people of this region, of this country. He's pro-Ukrainian and experienced a lot of harassment, eventually fleeing to Kyiv with his parents. I'm Masha Udensova-Brenner. This episode was written and produced by me with editorial guidance from Nathan Schiller and Marko Andrejcik. Our cover art is by Victoria Tentler Krylov. The music for this series is by Ivan Nebesny, who's still in Ukraine. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review. Those really go a long way in helping the podcast. Thank you so much. Until next time.